Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 2020 horror movie The Empty Man, written and directed by David Pryor and based on a comic by Cullen Bunn and Vanessa Del Rey. It stars James Badgedale as a former cop investigating the disappearance of a young woman who was obsessed with an urban legend known as The Empty Man. However, this is just one facet of a film that goes into a lot of different places as the story wears on. And kind of before we go any further, just a warning, this is a scary horror movie that includes themes of suicide, self-harm and intrusive thoughts. So we will be discussing that. And it's obviously a key component of the film. It's quite a spoilery movie. So we're going to discuss like the biggest spoilers of the ending towards the end. The middle section of the podcast, we're also going to discuss general plot spoilers But we'll kind of start with our normal intro, so kind of discussing the background and release of this film, which is pretty interesting, and sort of the initial premise and introduction of the film. I love this movie. Very scary. Very interesting. Lots of things to chew on. Yeah, as we will get into in depth in a moment, I'm sure this had a bizarre and unfortunate release situation. It had some problems with its studio, 20th Century Fox, to begin with because it was testing badly and then was a victim of the Disney Fox merger. So it basically was released in last fall to like no press whatsoever and then was sort of rediscovered by some critics and viewers more recently who hadn't really heard about it and really liked it. And so I had started hearing about it a couple months ago. And having now seen it, it is wild that a studio produced, funded this movie, because it is fucked up. (laughs) In a lot of ways, I think this movie is reflective of kind of like a studio aesthetic. Like, I think it's very well directed, but part of what is enjoyable about it, especially the first half before it gets really weird, is that it isn't particularly like visually audacious. Like, it looks like a studio movie. It's enjoyable to watch because it's really stylish, but also kind of visually familiar like it's not trying yeah, it's to be like an art professional film, right? but like starts out quite conventional yeah and then it just gets so fucking weird and dark and again <laughs> i was like interesting so big studio signed off on this and then somehow it wound up in the hands of disney which tried to pretend like it didn't exist which is why <laughs> we are here having this conversation months after its release. The concept of it getting pitched in the first place is like, it's so obvious that this was basically one of the best ways to get a movie made at the moment, like a genre movie, is for it to be a comic book adaptation. And this is, legally speaking, a comic adaptation (laughs) in that it's an adaptation of the Empty Man comics. But it it bears like no resemblance to those comics. And I've read a couple of interviews with the writer-director David Pryor and it's like, he is clearly drawing from a lot of things that he was already interested in and he'd written like other versions of this script. And then he was given by the Boom Studios comic publishers, like PR department sent him this comic, like, would you like to adapt this? And the original comic is quite wide ranging. It's more just like sort of straightforwardly bloody. And it treats the Empty Man concept as kind of a pandemic. The premise as was advertised in the trailers for this movie is like the Empty Man is this entity that kind of comes when you call him 
like Bloody Mary or whatever, which is one element of the movie. <laughs> but like the comic does not have the same characters, it does not have the same plot, it does not have the same tone. So it's kind of like he snuck in his pitch via it being a comic book adaptation by a relatively well-known comic book writer. But yeah, kind of just the general backstory for David Pryor. Um, he's this really kind of well-established behind-the-scenes documentarian. So he has like done all of the behind-the-scenes featurettes for David Fincher's movies for like a decade. So he's kind of made a lot of films and he's obviously in contact with quite big filmmakers. So this is like his first feature. He'd done like a horror short before this, but he's someone who had some relatively good industry connections and also like he's not a young filmmaker, which kind of I think comes out in his interviews because like he's got sort of quite a mature attitude to like the wildly fucked up story of how this movie eventually got released. But basically they filmed most of it in 2016 and then stuff was getting messed up at 20th Century Fox. So like they kind of put it on pause and then finished filming the next year in another batch. They did an early test screening with this really overlong cut, which of course had terrible test scores. And then the studio tried to make their own cut, which was like an hour and a half long, which also got terrible test scores because like this movie cannot be compressed into an hour and a half. It's pretty long for horror for good reason. And then, you know, the movie that was eventually released was what he wanted, which is a miracle. But like its actual release was incredibly fucked up because as Morgan said, this happened during the Disney Fox merger. Like Disney had no interest in releasing or marketing this film. The advertising was terrible. Like they didn't promote it properly and it didn't screen to critics and it was released in the middle of the pandemic. So it was like this perfect storm of like disastrous things happening around the release. There's this great interview with the thrillist that we'll reference a few times. You kind of see like David Pryor has this quite like informed attitude to publicity and he kind of does like say publicity is important not just in the sense like oh you've got to make sure that this movie is on people's radar but like if it's on people's radar in the wrong way or playing to the wrong audience like of course that's not going to work which is something we've seen before with films like Crimson Peak which was marketed as just straight horror but is clearly kind of a romance film and with this it's like yeah this is a horror movie but if you're going into it expecting what the trailer shows you which is a bunch of teenagers being scared of like a monster called the empty man then you're not going to receive like a fun thrill ride about slender man or whatever like it's just not it's not playing to that audience at all yeah he outlines in that thrillist interview sort of like viral marketing campaign stuff that he had had planned out that definitely would have worked and they didn't do any of it Partially, I'm sure, like, the pandemic did not help with that, but the studio was clearly not interested. And part of the problem was that the executive who had greenlit the film at Fox was let go, I think, even before the merger happened. So that was part of what threw the whole thing into chaos. And then the Fox and Disney merger happened, which was a problem. What he says about, like, after the second test screening where... Other people had put a cut together, which, as you said, was like an hour and a half long and didn't work. That it's actually like the final product isn't actually exactly his cut, although it's clearly like pretty close and not the, a bunch of other people putting it together because he wanted it to be around six minutes shorter. Not, I, I don't get the impression it's in the sense of like there's a six minute chunk that shouldn't be there, but like it just hadn't been completely tightened up yet. But this movie was shot primarily in South Africa, partially to get a tax break, right? And the production had just gone on for so long that they were running out of time to hit the point where, like, the re-rate kicks in, where you have to, like, lock picture, right? And so Disney was like, it has to be finished in the next two weeks! And, you know, that's it! And so they had to just, like, frantically rush to, like, Like, there's just, like, so much chaos, like... (laughs) And that he didn't actually see the 
proper finished film with like locked picture and locked sound like he supervised both of them but like the actual you know synthesis of both those things until it was released and he like went and saw it with his mom in a movie theater in October and it was like oh it's pretty good which I just this is not how this should be working just at all (laughs) not impressive from Disney on really any level here a common theme on this podcast (laughs) yeah but like they would never green light a movie like this so you can kind of imagine the executives there being like, what the fuck do we do with this thing, right? Like, it is so outside of their wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, it should be like coming out through like A24 or something. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I was thinking partway through that about A24 and Hereditary specifically, which this movie has a lot in common with, because it was shot so long ago, it's not like he watched Hereditary and then was like, hmm, let me, you know. In that interview, he actually says, like, there's a specific plot thing that appears in both of them. And he was disappointed when he saw Hereditary because he was like, damn it. And that didn't occur to me at all because I don't remember the plot of Hereditary with enough specificity to be like, oh, it's the same thing. But just in terms of there being, like, really kind of shockingly dark material in both of these movies in a way that even in horror movies, which are supposed to be disturbing, I don't think you often see. But again, like, the aesthetic of this movie is not the same as a lot of the A24 horror movies I've seen, which are not all the same either, which I think is something that people on Twitter do not understand because the studio is <laughs> yeah, not Yeah, it's like the way them. kind of people discuss A24 like it's a brand and it's like, can we not force the concept of a franchise onto stuff that isn't a franchise? <laughs> no, but what those movies do have in common is that they're made by directors who are really trying to have a specific visual aesthetic. And as I was saying about this movie, I think it's visually accomplished and like, pleasant to look at and like impressively directed, but it's definitely trying to be a studio film, right? So it doesn't have that same kind of like really striking visual look. Yeah, kind of like the vibe from, you know, Stephen King's It. Right. And so there's an interesting tension in the movie, I think, which is that it's kind of trying to be a big studio movie and doesn't have that same kind of like, I'm an art film, but also a horror movie thing. But then the content is kind of like, oh no, this should be being released by like a specialist distributor that's more comfortable with this being like a fucking weird and dark movie. And there's kind of a war going on within the movie, Mm -hmm. I think, about those two sensibilities. And like the characters they choose are really kind of smart in a deceptive way. Like just to kind of go into the intro, this film has like quite a long cold open. It basically has a prologue which isn't about the main character at all. It starts off with this like 15 minute mini story, which is about these four photogenic American hikers in the Himalayas. And um, they fall into trouble. And one of them literally falls into this like hidden cave in a crevasse. And when they climb down to try and get this guy out, they discover that he's sort of been hypnotized by this skeleton that's just sitting in this cave in the lotus position and it's like very disturbing like classic horror set piece he tells his friend like if you touch me you'll die and that's the only thing he says and obviously his friend does help him out they get caught in a storm and they end up in this little house together so there's like three people who are like very stressed and this one guy who's effectively catatonic and this little mini story ends very badly for all four of these people as you'd expect um but its main purpose is is to kind of establish the concept of the empty man mythos which is the first day you hear him and it's sort of activated by this guy's girlfriend like blowing on this flute that he carries up out of the cave And on the second day, you see the empty man. And then on the third day, he gets you. 
And this sort of manifests both with very traditional sort of looming monster guy and by the fact that it's clearly sort of like a psychic contagion. And it's also kind of very classic horror trope. People have gone to a place where they shouldn't be. Oh, there's these four Westerners and they shouldn't be messing around with this spiritual tradition which has nothing to do with them. And the demon from like the exorcist like starts out in the Middle East and like makes its way to America. It's similar to sort of horror movies where it's like, oh, this happened because you've built your housing estate on a Native American burial ground. And that's like the preamble to a story where a different version of the Empty Man sort of begins to spread a few years later in like a small American town. Yeah, I think that prologue is really fantastic. In a way, I think it's the best part of the movie, which can sometimes (laughs) be a problem. (laughs) I did, I mean, I like the whole movie a lot, but it's like 15 to 20 minutes long and it's like self-contained and just like this perfect thing, which then the rest of the movie is more sprawling and kind of like messy in good and bad ways, right? But I was incredibly impressed by the movie's ability to set that up in a way where you're just like immediately gripped by what's happening, even though obviously these aren't going to be the main characters, because like, I know the main character is played by James Badgedale, and he's not one of the four people in this party, right? So like, clearly something bad's going to happen to them. I do think there's an element of like, something bad coming from the East, which is like, not my favorite, but the mythology of this thing that, you know, James Badgedale discovers on Wikipedia later. (laughs) (laughs) is kind of more expansive than it just being like a thing that came from Bhutan. And I I think it's like simultaneously that, but it's also like, I think very self-critical in a way that we'll discuss more in the sort of slightly spoilery middle section. (laughs) Yeah. But in terms again of like the direction and this being directed by someone who has a ton of experience in a specific way, but not making movies like this, it just felt incredibly self-assured that part in particular in a way that I was really impressed by and also like signals to you as the viewer that the person making the movie slash the people making the movie of course there are a lot of people involved just like know what they're doing yeah I mean it seeds all of these really scary ideas in like a very simple self-contained traditional horror story right at the beginning and like you see a lot of these images they have to cross this big bridge to like get to the location they're going to and like the bridge is like a recurring theme the way the empty man functions is like obviously you've got this kind of three-day structure which is very scary because it gives you the right foreshadowing to be scared when the empty man shows up again in other forms but there's also just visual and like especially auditory details like this film sounds very scary (laughs) because you have this sort of more obvious thing where like blowing into flutes and bottles as part of the ritual to like call this entity but there's also like asmr happening the music in this film is very spooky by this like welsh experimental musical artist named Lustmord, (laughs) um, who apparently also did the score to First Reformed, which I've not seen, but is a disturbing but very different type of film. And they've got these sort of ASMR elements. So it's like at the beginning, when this guy is sort of catatonic and possessed, you see him sort of passing the contagion onto his girlfriend by like whispering this mantra into her ear. And these sort of whispering noises, they happen in the movie i can imagine if you were watching this in a theater where you had like the full surround sound like obviously only about 12 people had that experience but that must have been like so scary (laughs) 
Well, that reminded me of Hereditary too, right? Because of like the clucking sounds the kid yeah. makes in that, which is more of like one specific noise that gets repeated throughout that film. But it's the same kind of just like auditory thing that gets your hair standing up on the back of your head. And this is more a low noise that's kind of in the background, as you said, like an ASMR kind of thing, but has that same effect of just being like, oh, all the audio stuff in this movie is like really excellent. And so much of the movie hinges on that, which is common in horror, right? Like you want all the senses to be involved. But um, I just thought it was handled incredibly well. The music is great, as you say. I mean, this movie definitely has a lot in common with First Reformed, actually, even if they're aesthetically pretty different. Like, the sense of just, like, existential dread is pretty similar. But because you're not seeing, like, this thing very much, so much of it is being conveyed by these noises and the sense that there's, like, something just outside of the frame, but you can't quite see it in a kind of Babadook way, but in a without the monster being quite as, like, concrete as in that movie either. I was really impressed by that, too, um, and freaked out, so. (laughs) (laughs) But let's get into more of the main plot, which starts out in what seems to be a pretty conventional way. It sets up the main plot as a quite traditional sort of investigative horror story, so... The main character, as we said, is played by James Badgedale, who's like quite a prolific actor, but he's not like a leading man particularly. And he just looks like generic white man. Like he has like no distinguishing features particularly. And he's playing a very stereotypical type of protagonist for this type of story. So he's like a retired cop who's got a sad past. You know, you find out that he's lost his wife and child in some way and he's torn apart by that. And he's brought in to investigate this missing teenage girl because she is the daughter of his neighbor. It's quite conventional. And there's also sort of this interesting contrast between horror movies that have that sort of protagonist and horror movies that star like women and people of color. Because I think as we've discussed before, when we've kind of reviewed horror movies, there's like a lot of really interesting roles for women in the horror genre. Because there's sort of more freedom to discuss the terror and danger of real life in a sort of metaphorical way. You know, all these classics like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and stuff, they're all about women. And then when you have like a white man in the protagonist role of a horror film, you have to sort of structure the fear in a different way because that sort of character is traditionally seen as like less expressive and that sort of thing. So he is like very much the hero of this sort of noir investigation And the story has to, like, tear him apart as he investigates this mystery. And, like, this missing girl story is also introduced in this quite conventional way because the idea is that, like, oh, she's gone missing, but, like, they don't think she's run away and she's obsessed with this urban legend called The Empty Man. One of her friends explains sort of this flashback scene where this girl, who's played by Sasha Frolova, unknown actress, but is like very convincingly spooky and compelling in this film. She sort of introduces all her little silly teenage friends to like, oh, if you go to this scary bridge at night and you blow through a bottle and you think of the empty man and you call to him, then you'll set off, you know, the three day sequence. And they're all a bunch of idiot teenagers. So like, of course they do it. And of course it starts picking them off, which is the sort of Slender Man, Bloody Mary framework. But of course, as we've said... It's much creepier than that. (laughs) Yeah, I think, well, I have two thoughts relating to what you just said. One of which is that 
I think the casting in this movie is really smart. Yeah. Because James Badge Dale is an actor who, if you've watched a bunch of stuff, like American television or movies in the past 20 years, you've definitely seen him in things. Like, he's worked a lot. And he is always excellent. But he's not, like, a massively famous person. And he's someone who I definitely thought 15-ish years ago was going to be, like, a big movie star because he's incredibly talented and he's, like, a tall, handsome white man. And it just never really happened. He's in a supporting role in Iron Man 3, I think, but that's basically the only superhero or, like, big franchise thing he's done. I don't know if that was, like, a deliberate aversion to those movies or if he just didn't get offered them, but he's done some genre stuff, um, like this movie and a couple other horror films, I think. But he's mostly stayed away from, like, huge big budget stuff, which I think is part of the reason why he's not better known. But... Marin Ireland, who plays um, the teenage girl who disappears, like her mother, is also not very famous, but is an excellent actress who's done a ton of Broadway stuff and been on a ton of American television. And then like Stephen Root has one scene as like the leader of this cult, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And he's like one of the great American actors, but is mostly on television. And the teenagers are great too, and they're unknowns, but like clearly whoever was in charge of casting like the budget wasn't big enough to get really famous people, but basically everyone they cast is exceptionally talented. And I think that James Badgedale in particular, who is the person with by far the most great time in this movie, is just like fantastic in this film, even though he's not, I think the performance is kind of sneakily really interesting and good, but you don't quite know why until the end of the movie. So it's hard to talk about, <laughs> but um, most of the scenes, it's not like he's doing like big acting because he's kind of just playing like, a cop, uh-huh. an ex cop, and also thing, right? a lot. Similarly, in contrast to like a lot of horror movies, his job isn't really to be the audience stand-in because we don't need him to be scared for us to be scared because like yeah. the concept is already in our brain. <laughs> yes, but he also does serve in a kind of like everyman yeah. way, right? A lot of the characters in the movie, especially once it gets into the cult type stuff in the second half, and again, we will give some exposition on that in a minute. It gets, like, really weird, and most of the characters he's interacting with are fully bought into all this stuff, and so they're saying all this, like, crazy shit. Like, he starts to kind of unconsciously get drawn into it, too, but a lot of his dialogue will kind of be him being like, yeah, like, this is not... (laughs) I'm like, okay, you're acting crazy, which helps with uh, for us, too, right? Because, like, we're sort of freaked out by what's going on, but also like, okay, clearly all these people are nuts, right? So he serves as kind of a bulwark against that a little bit. I do think, and there, again, there's kind of a reason for this, which we'll talk about later, but I think the teenage girl and her mom are both, like, the, the performances are good. I do think those characters are definitely underwritten in a way that is yeah. probably the thing I liked the least about the movie, especially Marin Ireland, the mom. I mean, it's sort of like, she's this female character who has, like, no other social ties, and it's like, the only person you can go to is your male neighbor. <laughs> And, like, they had an affair at one point, which, I mean, I assumed that was the case, but it doesn't become clear that that's the case until pretty late in the movie. And when the teenage girl goes over to, she like, the very beginning of the movie, she goes over to, like, check on him to see how he's doing. And they had this, like, bizarre conversation. And I was like, is she his daughter? Am I supposed to be getting a vibe between them? Like, what the fuck? And then I was like, no, no. That's not what's happening, thank God. In terms of the casting, as you were saying, the casting's really good. I think that 
David Pryor really was unusually kind of like involved in casting because like he wanted James Badgedale from the beginning and also I mean obviously all directors are heavily involved in casting but like he wanted James Badgedale and then in terms of this teenage girl actor Sasha Falova apparently he kind of was initially just imagining that character as like an all-American cheerleader type. He just got like this audition tape for her and he was like, well, she's really weird. She has weird vibes. Let's cast her. (laughs) So he like flew to New York to be like, please do more like weird vibes for me. It seems like the character was sort of shaped around that because she's more gothic, but not like stereotype goth dress sense. And she's got this sort of strange page boy haircut and just these like weird staring eyes. Great, great look. (laughs) Yeah, it did make me think a little bit there was this teenage girl in Mare of Easttown recently too of like what adults in Hollywood think like Gen Z kids wear and dress like, dress like <laughs> is definitely kind of amusing. Like I'm not that I spent a ton of time with them, but there's definitely a look that they have in their brains, which I don't think is totally tied to reality, which is fine. But yeah, I just feel like those characters are pretty thin, especially the mom who like comes in a few times and she's freaking out about her daughter being gone, which like, of course you would be. But she has these scenes with the protagonist where she just like wants to bang him, but she's freaked yeah. out about her daughter. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, have a conversation, maybe just a normal conversation. That would be great. And even like he's interacting with the police chief in this town because he's like unofficially investigating this thing. And that character is not particularly like complex or deep at all. But the conversations that they have just feel more normal to me, even if they're not particularly profound or nuanced or anything. Nothing triggered in my mind watching them. I was just like, okay, yeah, we're having this scene now. Whereas the stuff with the mom, I was like, I know Marin Ireland's a great actress and you could definitely be doing more with her than her just being like... I'm so sad. Yeah. Like, it was and horny. Right? It's tropey. Like, mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay, now is kind of the point where we're not discussing major spoilers from the end. If you've not watched the film yet and you'd like to watch the film without knowing more, just pause the podcast and go watch the film and listen to the rest of the podcast because now we're going to discuss sort of the central themes and the main things that happen as he delves into this very weird uh, investigation. So yeah, as, as Morgan said, a cult is a very key element of this story. And it's um, very much playing into sort of cosmic Lovecraftian horror tropes. As the detective investigates this girl's disappearance, you know, he finds her, her friends who have all kind of also fallen foul of this empty man contagion. But he also finds out that she's into this thing called the Pontifex Institute. It's very, it felt very real to me because it's kind of, it's got this like silly little new age logo And, you know, the word Pontifex, once again, is also kind of a reference to the bridge theme, which is kind of recurring through the film because you get it in the intro and then you get it when the teenagers are summoning the empty man with their bottles on the bridge in America. But he like goes to the headquarters of this thing, which is like clearly a cult. And the vibes are like through the floor. Unbelievably toxic, stinky vibes. Uh, (laughs) Like weird, (laughs) hollow-eyed people like staring at each other and gets given this quiz, which has all these questions, which are clearly trying to like root out people who have very open minds and also extremely nihilistic worldviews. And he goes to this meeting, which, as Morgan said, is kind of led by this jovial and self-absorbed cult leader guy played by Stephen Root. And I didn't notice this at the time, but when I was looking at the cast list, I noticed his name is Arthur Parsons, which is clearly a reference to Jack Parsons of the Parsonage, who, if you've not heard of him, 
truly an amazing figure to read about. He was the founding, uh, one of the founding guys of like NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but he was also a massive occultist. So he was like running this occult sex club with all these rocket scientists. The parsonage is a tremendous thing to Google. But yeah, it's spooky, but it's also quite funny because like the way this character is talking is like such a kind of like American self-help thing. And there's all these like young people staring at him really avidly. And he's taken what is introduced as this sort of very scary and otherworldly entity and then rebooted it in a sort of marketable American cult way that I thought was extremely well observed because, you know, across worldwide human cultures, there are things which we can all recognize as cults that kind of use the same loose, like psychological and emotional mechanisms to manipulate people. So like isolating people and controlling their decisions and making them believe that they're part of a collective rather than making their own choices and like forcing people to do repetitive actions so they can't think clearly and all that sort of thing. And we see all of that here. But when we're initially introduced to the empty man, it's kind of like this naturally occurring force, which is really scary. And it is kind of playing into these ideas of cosmic horror. But then this cult is like, these American people have sort of changed that idea into something that we'd recognize more as like the secret. Oh, you can make something happen in real life by thinking about it really hard. So they've taken this sort of Himalayan idea of like a tulpa, which is this sort of entity you can create by thought and prayer. And they made it sort of commercial and American and capitalist where it's like, we're all going to do this by like working hard together and like following this plan with like instruction videos that the cult is making. And it doesn't seem like it's a scam, like they're making a bunch of money, but it's very sort of hierarchical and organized because in addition to this cult leader who is only there for one scene, James Badgedale is kind of looking through this building which has all these members of this cult and they're all in these like dormitories and they're doing these sort of ritualistic prayers to try and summon the empty man through these like educational tapes with these mantras that they're being given that's trying to be like, oh, nothing exists and if something does exist, you can't observe it and all these like creepy things persuading people that nothing is real, which is just very scary and sort of manipulative and playing into sort of ideas of depression and like disconnection from reality. Yes, I found this whole sequence very distressing in an effective way. The questions on the form that they get him at the beginning, which you don't see for that long, but it's long enough for you to read them. I was just like, oh, I don't like this at all. <laughs> There's one about like, does your brain itch? And I was just like, oh! Yeah, I was like, like, this is, that. I'm terrified. <laughs> I don't remember the other ones because that's the one they re- reference repeatedly in the rest of the movie, but... I, again, was like, I shudder to think about the mind of the person writing this movie. Though the interviews, he seems totally pleasant. Uh, You know, uh, the mystery of art. But having your thumb on sort of the pulse of what gets that kind of reaction of just like, oh, no, I don't like this at all. is just like very effectively done in this movie, I think. He talks about this in interviews that he was like, I didn't want jump scares and I felt like that sort of horror was kind of drifted away from what's really scary in horror movies, right? And obviously that kind of thing can be fun in a film. And there are a couple moments in this movie where you do have something that yeah, kind of Yeah, I mean, there's a couple, out, right? couple of moments where you physically see something that's like a representation of the empty man. And it's like, obviously the real fear is the idea of something invading your brain and making you like kill people. But there is like a scene where James Badgedale is hiding from the empty man. And I was also hiding from the empty man because I was like, oh my God, it could be any shadow in the room. (laughs) 
But that's definitely not the like dominant. No, that's like that just that's just like good filmmaking. (laughs) Yeah, and with Hereditary too, there are a couple moments like that where like something will be in the corner of the screen, and you're like, oh god. But most of that when people talk about like the scariest thing in Hereditary being the scene where there's like a person up in the corner, and I'm like, yeah, that's like a jump scare. But like the scariest part of the film isn't that there was like a scary thing up on the ceiling. (laughs) No, and I think. I really don't actually think that these those movies are that similar, even no, though I've referenced it a couple of times. But I think what they do have in common is the sense of just, like, what is really frightening, again, is not that. It's this, like, deeper existential stuff that the movie is forcing you to think about by making you watch it for two plus hours, right? And the, like, little rhetorical things, like the stuff on the form, or, like, the thing you said about nothing is real and you can't if it's real you can't talk about it and just the way it's shot in those moments there's just something incredibly unsettling about that stuff and then after he's sort of poking around there he drives down to this like remote place in the woods where they have a cabin which reminded me very much of another film we talked about recently ish um the endless which has very similar aesthetic stuff to what goes on in the scene and finds this, like, video tape of this guy who's, like, in a sort of trance state making this mural on the wall. And just the aesthetic of that is just totally terrifying. That was the moment where I was like, I'm alone in my apartment and it's dark and I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, I think this is kind of why I dropped the ball on when we were doing our St. Maud episode. It's just, like, the feelings that I had when I was watching that film for the first time were, like, so intense. And the feelings I had, to, just to speak of it very simply, while watching this movie, were obliteratingly afraid. During this sequence, I mean, I am kind of spoiling one of the coolest parts of the film, but, like, there is this sequence where he kind of sees all of these cultists in the dark. Like, it's very dark, but it's well shot, so it doesn't seem too gloomy. But, like, they're all outside, and they're just kind of, like, going round and round this fire, And it's kind of echoing, you see other things in the movie circling, like you see him circling this like drying rack at some point and you see these prayer wheels at the beginning of the movie. But they're doing this kind of ritual where they're going round and round the fire. It's so fucking scary to just see a bunch of people walking round in a circle in this movie. They start to interact with him from a distance and it's just like, this is, the imagery here is like really going to stick with me. And it's just a bunch of people like walking in a circle in a field. Yeah, I mean, you had texted me like while watching it being like, this is so scary. And I definitely found the movie disturbing and upsetting but not necessarily scary so much but that scene I was like no I hate this (laughs) (laughs) and I think it is just like absence of self right which is what the movie is really about and the sense of being in a collective can be really empowering which is part of what makes cult appealing to people of course but also it can be terrifying because you're like losing that sense of individual identity as we saw in Midsummer. (laughs) yeah a movie I did not care for but in this, that scene in particular, that sense of just, like, the massive people with no, like, faces, basically, is so sort of like, oh. I do think that the movie is better at conveying that sense of kind of almost instinctive terror more than conveying any bigger ideas <laughs> about that, which is not a very articulate sentence, but if yeah. maybe you know what I mean. I mean, like, I think that's kind of like the the mark of really good cosmic horror being able to like execute the idea of like 
there's this unbelievably horrifying sense of dread that's emerging from somewhere which is like both inside the human spirit and outside of any kind of observable reality. Yes. But I would say, like, I like this movie less than you. I thought it was really good. And I would recommend it if you want to have a bad time watching a film. (laughs) But like, I think there's a little bit of fuzziness about what's the point. And again, to go back to Hereditary, which I'm just using as an example because it's on my mind because I keep mentioning it. I know what that movie's about, right? That's about family. It's very clear. And I don't necessarily need every movie to be like this is about something and in fact hereditary i think it's pretty i don't like the end of that movie but i think it's pretty successful because i don't think it's an allegory i think it's clearly like about things but i don't think the horror stuff is like a one-to-one allegory for the family stuff it's just like happening also and kind of expressing it in an interesting way but i do think that i like i also think this movie is too long an hour and a half would not be long enough but i think it probably could have been cut down a little bit. Like, it meanders a little bit in the middle, which I think adds to the sense of, like, it's just kind of, like, trying to find a direction to figure out where it's going. And I think the, ex- like, the experience of watching it was really affecting to me. Like, I, again, I felt bad at the end <laughs> and did not want to go to sleep after, but was really impressed by it. And impressed by the like audacity of the darkness but to what end i'm not totally sure yeah sometimes sometimes like the goal of the success is just the bad vibes (laughs) yeah which we have different philosophical opinions on that i think (laughs) but do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get into the end no i don't think so but like now we are going to talk about like the extremely spoilery ending So it is intentionally very ambiguous. And I've got kind of a couple of interesting quotes from uh, the director here. The first of which is he just said, I felt like what modern audiences will hungrily embrace is being done by everybody else. And I figured, let's try something different. Let's try and embrace ambiguity. So kind of the final act of this movie is, as with a lot of kind of stories that are about either an investigator in the horror genre or a white man protagonist who kind of feels like quite a solid archetype. As is often the case, this kind of ends in like this sort of breakdown of the character and of reality, but it takes it much further due to like the themes of the film. His investigation culminates in him finding this guy who is in a coma and has been in a coma for many, many years and is seen as like a conduit with the empty man entity by this cult. And they sort of almost worship him, but he's kind of used up. They need a new empty man. And by this point, you can kind of infer that they are like targeting in some way the protagonist to be the new empty man. But like the final scene, yeah, the final scene is like he goes to visit this guy's hospital bed. And there's another really great casting moment here because they just have this woman for like one scene who's playing the middle-aged nurse at like the nurse's station. And she has just like a conversation with him about like, oh, how long's this guy been in hospital bed? And she was great. And I was like, even like this random cameo actress has got like a really fun performance. <laughs> um, and if anything, perhaps like a more interesting character, as you said, than Marin Ireland's lead female character. Yeah. That nurse was just really great. But um, yeah, he kind of goes to this guy's hospital bed and the teenage girl he's been searching for this whole time is there. And it's sort of like a heel turn moment where she's like, reveals that she is indeed very dedicated to this cult and 
they've been manipulating him the whole time. And the concept is that he is a tulpa. He has been like created by the collective work of this cult. They've all focused on the idea of him as a person and created this very simple, archetypal, fucked up investigator guy who follows the right genre tropes to be manipulated into the position of becoming the next empty man because like he's got this incredible grief but he's also got this guilt because like he cheated on his wife with his neighbor and he's got this drive to dig deeper into this disturbing thing that sets him in the right mindset to become the empty man and sort of welcome the empty man from another dimension into his body and so that kind of allows you to view the rest of the story in a different light and it, it i thought it was like a really fun way to sort of satirize the archetypes they use to create this like quite generic protagonist you know it's one of these endings where like if you're the sort of person who really wants to like analyze everything that's happened in the film through different lenses i'm sure you can have a lot of fun explaining stuff but i'm sort of like i don't really need to think deeply about which parts of the film are and aren't quote-unquote real you could also interpret it as like he was real and she's just like fucking with his mind because he's so messed up by this point you know Yeah, I tend not to care about, like, that kind of thing either. I don't find it very interesting to think about. But I totally agree that the sense of, like, him as kind of a commentary on this type of protagonist character is quite interesting and smart and reflected in the performance throughout, right? Because he does have this quality of being, like, again, a sort of everyman character and... There's a kind of charm to him throughout a lot of the movie, not in an aggressive, over-the-top, like, super charismatic way, but in a laid-back way, like, he's just kind of likable. Yeah, he's like a chill, reliable, like, suburban dad. Yeah. Again, it's not too much, but when you find out that, at least according to her, they've sort of constructed him, I found that then really interesting to think about in terms of the performance, because... It's kind of a construction of the type of white masculinity that we're sort of trained to find reassuring, right? Especially in the context of him being an ex-cop. Obviously, this was written, like, many years ago, so the more recent discussions about this would, would not have been on the minds of anyone making it. But the movie kind of has its cake and eats it, too, in terms of the cop stuff, but, like, in an interesting way, because he's not actually a cop, but he's basically functioning as a cop in terms of the film right and also all of the other police are just like incompetent (laughs) yeah so you want him to figure out the investigation but the more he investigates the deeper he just gets sucked into this completely fucked up thing and it is like rotting his brain and that sense of him having this kind of easy charm and confidence begins to get eroded over the course of the movie. And again, it's not like big acting, but by the time he arrives at the hospital at the end and has that conversation with the nurse you mentioned, who I agree is just like, great one scene performance. He's losing it. Like he is totally just, he's trying to be suave. Like, yeah, I'm just a private investigator and I just need you to tell me a little bit about this guy here, but it's so transparent that he's just, he's not doing very well. So I really appreciated that element of the film. Yeah. And and also just kind of in that regard, there's this detail which like while I was watching the film, I just noted as like a really fun, bizarre little detail. But then afterwards, kind of when I was reading interviews, I was like, okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> which is the like the high school that the teens go to is called Jacques Derrida High School. And I was like, 
is, is this like a real high school? Like, no one, who would name their high school after this philosopher of like literary theory? And I found this interview with David Pryor where he says, the high school has to be named something. You might as well name it after something thematically relevant. <laughs> The other is the idea of hollowing out the objective standards of what's understood to be true, is what the project of deconstruction, if not encourages, at least allows for. The narrative was intended to atomize along with the psyche of the main character. The movie and the character are reflecting each other as it goes, and that becomes a feedback loop where nobody knows what's really true anymore, which is a hilarious thing to say about a movie which was released by Disney. I know I noticed that watching it like the camera definitely lingers enough on that name where like you're probably gonna pick up on it and was just like what is happening like we should also say the guy in the bed the like empty man Mm -hmm. character is the guy is one of the guys from the prologue of the movie which I just felt was more concrete than a lot of the stuff in the film but did make me feel like oh so it was all connected Mm -hmm. and she says something about how it's been like decades since that happened and now he's the body's running out basically which is why they need a new one which again in terms of just like the whole thing kind of fitting together pretty well i thought was smart i mean despite my sort of qualms about it sort of being a bit too long and meandery i think that having this twist at the end it again does all kind of fit together in a really smart way which sometimes with a horror movie when they're just like, it's the devil at the end. And you're like, that seems a little too literal. Like, I don't know. (laughs) And instead it ends with like, who's the real empty man, huh? (laughs) Right. And like, okay. Like it all feels pretty tonally consistent to what's been happening with the film. And I'm sure you could go back and watch the whole thing and it would all kind of make sense based on the new information you have at the end, which I think is really hard to pull off on a screenwriting level. So I was taken with that for sure. Almost as if he'd been observing David Fincher's career very closely for the past decade. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's definitely a, like a Fincher-ian quality to this movie, for sure. But it's like weirder than Fincher's films, especially lately, are. And yeah. slightly, again, messier in a way that's like a blessing and a curse, because some of that messiness makes it, I think, again, like a bit overlong, but also it has more personality than... Mank, for instance, which we didn't like. I'd already forgotten Mank, as it should be. (laughs) There is a montage right at the end of the movie that is just terrible. And I have to wonder if that was one moment of the studio exerting itself. But who knows? A real classic case of a film that should just have ended five minutes earlier. But yeah, really good movie. I hope he gets to make something else after this bizarre situation. Final thoughts? Um, I hope someone who listens to the podcast will watch The Empty Man as a result of our little chat. Let us know what you think. (laughs) I'm certain that people will, although possibly by the time people are listening to it now, they will already have seen it. Yeah. Because this was not exactly, as we've discussed, highly publicized. So I feel like we will probably be bringing the news of this movie to our listeners. So yeah, please do let us, and especially Gav, know what you thought about this because she was the one who programmed this episode so yeah we haven't decided what we're doing next week but join us for another amazing episode of Overinvested. <laughs> yes if you would like to support us on patreon our patreon is patreon.com slash podcast gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor and you can find me on youtube at behind the seams and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. 
The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.